Amen. What a, a privilege and a joy to get to, to sing with you all this morning. Uh, and uh, what a joy to be able to, to gather together. It's amazing how uh, several weeks apart will we'll show us all the things that we took for granted for so long. Uh, just uh, the honor and the joy of gathering together to worship uh, by singing to our great God and Savior and now by, by opening up His Word and looking together uh, in worship uh, of Him. And uh, in, back in July of 1961... The, uh, the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were, were gathered together for the first day of training camp. Uh, and uh, the previous season had ended uh, with them losing in the championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, and they had been leading in the fourth quarter, and they ended up giving up that lead and, and losing the championship. And, and the whole team had uh, had that loss weighing upon them uh, for the entire off season, uh, and they, they couldn't wait to to get to training camp and, and to to advance their game to the next level, uh, to to work on the the big and, and complicated things in the game of football, so that they could get back to uh, that championship game and, and win. But their coach Vince Lombardi had a a different idea. Uh, there's a, a biography of uh, Vince Lombardi uh, by David Moranis. Uh, and in that biography, he explains this uh, of what Vince Lombardi did when he walked into training camp in 1961. He said he took nothing for granted and he began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. And he began with the most elemental statement of all. He walked into the locker room with a football and he held it up and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And think about that. Lombardi is, is coaching professional football players. Uh, and this team was just minutes away from winning the championship. And, and where is he starting with them? He's going back to, to square one, really square zero, right? If you're explaining what a football is, but that is where he began, and that was Lombardi's uh, methodical approach to cover the fundamentals. Uh, and that's what he did, not only that training camp, but each and every training camp. And uh, at one point during the training camp, Max McGee, who was a, a Pro Bowl wide receiver, says, uh, Coach, could you slow down a little bit? You're going too fast. And, and that, that brought a smile to, to Coach Lombardi's face. But it didn't change his obsession with the basics. Uh, and ultimately, <clears throat> his team would become the best because they focused upon what everybody else overlooked. Uh, and in the, that season of 1961, they ended up going once more to the, the NFL championship game. And they, they beat the New York Giants 37-0, to zero, which in football terms is a, a big spread. It's a stomping. Uh, and, and so you see, so often we are, we are wanting to advance by, by moving beyond the basics, but by going to the really complicated things, when in reality, we really need to focus on the basics. Uh, and a sound understanding of the, the fundamentals will allow us to build upon a solid foundation. 
And to a certain extent, that's what we are doing this summer as we've taken a break from uh, the Gospel of John and we're doing this series on the church, uh, the, the household of God. What is the church supposed to be and what are we supposed to do as a church? And th- this morning's message uh, is entitled, The Priority of the Church, Worship. Because our, our tendency is to move past the basics and, and we want to leave them far behind, but What are the basics when it comes to the church? Uh, And first and foremost, the basics are understanding why we are here. Why do we gather together on Sunday morning? Why do we gather together throughout the week? Why do we exist as a church? What is our purpose? What are we to do? What should our priorities be? And ultimately, you could say that the, the church has a threefold purpose. To exalt God to edify the saints, to to build up those who are believers, and then to evangelize unbelievers. As Vincent would say, it's a three-legged stool. Uh, And uh, the three legs support the mission of the church or what what it is intended to be and to do. But one of those legs is a little bit sturdier and a little bit more important than the other two. And it's the first one to exalt God. And really we exalt God by doing the other two. We bring glory and honor and praise to God by discipling and pouring into his people so that his church is built and by going and proclaiming who he is and what he has done to the nations through evangelism. And as we, as we study God's word this morning, I'm going to be using three terms synonymously. The idea of worshiping God. Uh, is going to be equal to uh, and equated with exalting God and also equal to the idea of glorifying God. Okay, I'm going to use those interchangeably. So worship, glorifying, and exalting are all meant uh, to speak of the same activity. Uh, and this morning I'd like to, to look at this topic of worship, the, the priority of the church, under three big headings. Number one would be worship and the big picture of RCGG, and uh, RCGG is code uh, for the, the big picture of the whole Bible that we looked at last week. Of where does the church fit into history? Well, uh, the big picture of history is redemption in Christ for the glory of God. So that's what I mean. That's code for RCGG. So worship in the big picture. Then we're going to look at what is worship, and then how should the church worship? That's what we want to look at this morning, and we're going to begin with worship and the the big picture. And uh, I would encourage you to to begin with me. Well, uh, open up to Colossians uh, chapter 1. You you can start there. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. What we have to to understand in, in worship and the big picture is that humanity was created to worship God. That, that is why we exist. It's not for ourselves. It's not for our pleasure, for our own enjoyment, that we could uh, fulfill the Disney theology of following our own hearts. Uh, we were created for the glory of God. Genesis 1, which we looked at last week, we were created in God's image. Uh, and we were created to be God's image, to represent him before his creation. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, as Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, he is teaching them about who Jesus is. And he writes this, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then this, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now that verse has a lot of exact numbers, right? All things. That doesn't leave anything outside of that. Uh, And what this is saying here in the Greek is that all things are in, through, and to Jesus. All things were created by his power or in Christ. All things were created through him. Nothing came into being that, uh, nothing exists apart from entering into existence through Jesus. And then the kicker and which is most important for our discussion today, all all things are to Christ. All things are for Christ, right? The the end destination, the end goal of the entire creation is to go towards the glory of Jesus. That is the intention of all creation. We exist to glorify him, to worship him. Uh, The Westminster Catechism begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? Uh, and I love catechism. I'm, I'm working through a catechism with my son right now. Uh, and uh, he could probably answer. I won't put him on the spot right now since he's three years old. But, um, uh, but, but the idea of a catechism is you, you teach your, your children, you ask them a question, and then they give you an answer. You work with them on, on memorizing it. And so the, the Westminster Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that is our purpose. That is the reason for our existence. To, to worship God and to live joyfully as we worship him. If we want to find true joy, it's only going to come by fulfilling our purpose. Right? We're not going to find joy elsewhere. But as we, as we saw last week, as we looked at the big picture of human history, that there was creation and then there was the fall. Uh, And from that point on, humanity has gone our own way. We were created to worship God, but what have we done? We have worshiped other things. If you you have your Bibles, jump over to Romans chapter 1. Speaking of fallen humanity, the Apostle Paul writes this beginning in verse 18 of Romans 1. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So everybody knows God exists. How do we know? We just look around. That's what Paul is saying. Everybody knows God exists. So everybody is without excuse. Then verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but... They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And, here's the key, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore God gave them up in their lusts and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the create the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so the reason I, I, I read that and point us there is to help us to see. So we were created to be worshipers, but we haven't worshipped what we were created to worship. But that doesn't mean that we stopped worshiping. We were created to worship God, but rather than just stopping that, what have we done? We have exchanged our worship for something else. Our, our worship was, was redirected towards the creation, towards creatures, rather than towards our Creator, We do not simply cease from worship. We just begin to worship something else. And G.K. Chesterton says, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And that is the, the, the core idea there. We were created to be worshipers, and that is what we will do. Worship comes naturally to us. You ever think about that? We don't have to, to be taught how to worship we have to be taught who to worship and what not to worship. The worship part comes naturally. We are, we are all naturally drawn to, to put our identity, our hopes, our, our dreams upon things and circumstances in this life. We naturally look to other things to help us. We give our affection to them. We are naturally worshipers. And Humanity failed to worship God, and so God's plan, again, as we saw that last week, God said, okay, humanity has failed, so let me, let me create a nation to worship me. Now, the nation of Israel, a special nation, was intended to serve him to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, but just like humanity exchanged the worship of God for something else, guess what Israel did? They exchanged the worship of God for idols. Uh, the, the deacon Stephen, just before he, he's martyred, his, the sermon that got him killed in Acts chapter 7, uh, he, he says this to Israel, Acts chapter 7, verse 41. Speaking of Israel's history, he says, And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Again, he points to Exodus chapter 32. Israel didn't just stop worshiping. They redirected their worship to a golden calf that they made. But God turned away and gave them over to, the, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch, which is a, an idol, a, a pagan deity, and the star of your God, Rephon, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Israel was condemned for exchanging the worship of the one true God with the worship of idols. That's what we, we read over and over again in the book of Jeremiah, as we read the last couple of months, right? Over and over, Israel is condemned for their idolatry. And because Israel failed in what they were called to do, God says, all right, now I'm going to send forth the message of the gospel to the nations. Jesus Christ, the, the promised Messiah, came and then was rejected by Israel. So now the message of salvation goes to the church. So you could say humanity was created to worship and they failed. Israel was created to worship God and they failed. So now God says, all right, I'm going to create the church. 
that the gospel is going to go forth to the nation. So guess what the church was created to do? To worship. Again, this is the ultimate priority. This is what we must keep in mind. And if you turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 6. Speaking of the salvation of Christians, the salvation of all who make up the church. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Understanding our salvation is towards a certain end to the praise of his glorious grace. God the Father planned our salvation from eternity past. God the Son accomplished our salvation when he came and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and then rose from the grave. And God the Spirit applies that salvation to our hearts. And all of that has been planned, accomplished, and applied so that we... And that is the purpose that we as individuals and a church body must embrace and understand. Because if we understand this, then our our purpose becomes clear, and then we are able to prepare our hearts and our lives accordingly. But if we misunderstand our purpose, if we get that wrong or we're off a couple degrees, ultimately it will have a significant impact upon our lives. Imagine with me this, a professional athlete. Okay. Uh, a professional athlete who arrives at their game with the wrong understanding of what they are there to do, they're going to struggle, right? Now, if a, if a basketball player arrives to the court in football cleats, helmet, and pads, it's going to be a little silly, right? And he's going to be sliding around on the court everywhere. He's not going to be able to get his hands up because when you have football pads, that's about as high as you can go. Uh, he's going to have a help. All of this, he's not going to be able to fulfill his purpose easily. Or imagine a, a football player arriving at the field with ice skates and a hockey stick, right? You need to get stuck in the mud and not go anywhere. And he's going to wonder, why is this so hard? I don't understand what's going on. Well, well you're wearing hockey gear and you're supposed to be playing football, right? It, it's really quite simple. Or imagine a baseball player going up to bat with a fishing rod. He's not going to succeed at his task, at what he came to do. But that's exactly what most people in our world are doing. They're seeking to live life in their own power, by their own wisdom, and toward their own desires. And then... Because they have the wrong mindset and are ill-equipped, they wonder why life is so hard, why they find no joy, no satisfaction, and no meaning to their everyday life. They are uh, on a boat without a rudder, uh, without wind, without sails, without oars. They have no idea where to go, what to do, and how to do it. 
And that's discouraging. And sometimes we as believers, we, we forget the basics here. The basics. Why are we here? What is it we are supposed to do? Why do you exist? Because if you, if you bypass the, what's foundational and the most basic, you, sometimes you'll struggle to get out of bed in the morning, right? When it's just about you, if it was just about me, I would still be in bed, right? Probably most of you as well. Uh, you're like, some of you may miss the coronavirus for that, the, the pajama season uh, of church, you can call that. Uh, but, uh, but understanding our purpose in life, that will get us out of bed in the morning. That, that will help us through the hard and the difficult seasons of life if we understand Whatever comes, I, I am to respond to it for, to the glory of God. It's not about me living the American dream. It's not about me being happy or succeeding in life. We have been saved. We exist to become worshipers, to give glory, honor, and praise and adoration to God. We have to understand that as individuals, and then we have to understand that as a church. Right? Because if the church exists to worship God and to bring Him glory, then who is it not about? Us. It's not about us, it's about Him. So we come to, to sing to Him and about Him. And the church doesn't then exist for us, nor does it exist to, to transform society. The church doesn't exist to eliminate poverty or relieve the physical needs of society. The church doesn't exist in order to, to bring about social justice to a nation. The church exists to worship, to glorify God. And this does not mean that societies won't be transformed as people come to know Christ. doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the physical needs of the poor or the orphans or the widows. No, that will be a byproduct of us worshiping Christ because as we will we'll see a little bit later, as we worship God, that's going to, that, that's going to, to, to sprinkle outwards. There's going to be a vertical relationship and then a horizontal relationship in our worship. But the ultimate priority of the church is worship. And it has to maintain that focus. The church exists to glorify God as a, as a community of the redeemed, to, to worship him for who he is and what he has done. So the natural question of all of that, is that how you have viewed the church? Is that how you have viewed yourself? That, that you exist for his glory? Not your own enjoyment, not for your own glory, not for your own passions, but you exist to praise and glorify, to worship our Creator, to worship our Savior. And so we have to, to take inventory of our hearts and of our lives and of our ways of thinking, and then we have to, to realign them to what Scripture is saying. And we have to realign our thoughts and desires and our intentions so that we understand that our priority is to worship God. And no matter what else we are doing, if we miss this, we're failing. Right? Now, we have to understand that this is the ultimate priority to worship 
God. And, and once we, we understand that, the, the, the idea of where worship fits into the big picture of our existence, then we can move to the second question, right? What in the world is worship? What, you, you've, okay, you've said it's really important. Now, what is it? Well, really simply, a simple definition would be this, that worship is the expression of honor and adoration to God. Worship is the expression of honor and adoration to God. Worship comes from, from an old English word that uh, is connected to the concept of worthiness. So when we, when we worship God, we are giving uh, him value. We are ascribing to him worthiness. We're saying that he is worthy of our adoration, worthy of our affection. Even as we sang this morning, it's a beautiful song that we sang just before I came up, right? Is he worthy? And then what would we all say together? He is. Amen. There's a, a fuller and longer definition I think I have on a, on a slide there, if you can pull it up. Uh, John MacArthur would say this, a long definition, and I know long definitions are easier when you can uh, look at them. Worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that more. Uh, but another helpful way of breaking th- this idea of worship down into components comes from a, a Puritan named uh, Thomas Watson. And, and he said that worship or glorifying God consists of, of four things. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Okay, appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Uh, and I've kind of taken those categories and I've kind of slightly altered uh, the definitions to them. But you could, you could look at it like this, that appreciation consists of ascribing honor and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us in the gospel. That we appreciate what God has done. Secondly, adoration, which would consist of placing God highest in our thoughts. I know some of you may already be thinking about lunch, right? It's around that middle time of the day. But adoration is that, that focus of our, our highest thinking and our focus upon who God is. We worship him and ascribe glory to him because of all that he is. Appreciation, what he has done. Adoration for who he is. And then affection simply means that we, we love God from our heart. That where God is loved, he is glorified. And that is something to to keep in mind. That you can go through all of the motions, right? You look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. If you gave them a list to to obey, they would be fantastic, right? Check, 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 check. Uh, But what were they missing? A a love and, and an actual affection for God was lacking. So it's not just the the doing of the checklist that glorifies God, but it's having an affection for him. And then fourthly, we could say subjection. Part of our worship is acknowledging who God is and who we are, right? It's saying, God, you are the creator. 
I'm the creature. And then aligning ourselves rightly according to that. Because what are we always tempted to do? To invert that. Say, I'm a creature, but I want to act like I am the creator. That's always the temptation. And true worship of God is is going to involve all four of those aspects. Appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. Now, next Sunday is Father's Day. Just a helpful reminder for all of those of you who may have forgotten. There's still shopping days left. Um, Next Sunday is Father's Day. and, And what you will more than likely do on Father's Day is hopefully you'll spend time with your father. Right? You will also probably thank him for what he has done throughout your life. You might share favorite stories, hopefully not too embarrassing, about your dad. Remembering things that he has done with you or things that he has done for you. You might write him a card, and in that card you might express an an appreciation for him. You might speak of his character and his faithfulness to your family. And hopefully you will express your love for him. And I'm not saying that you, you worship your father on Father's Day. We, we celebrate our earthly fathers on that day. But what takes place on that day is a very small sample of what worship looks like. And to a certain extent, every single day for the Christian should be Heavenly Father's Day. Right? We should always be thanking God, appreciating him for all that he has done, adoring him for all that he is, expressing our affection and our love for him, and then subjecting ourselves under his sovereign rule. We should be acknowledging his lordship over every area of our lives. Right, so every day should be Heavenly Father's Day, but is every day actually that? I, I can't say that. Right, and, and if we're all honest, we really struggle to do that for even a portion of any part of the day, right? That's hard. There are moments when the, the things of this world capture our appreciation, our adoration, our affection. And we subject our things to the things of this world rather than subjecting ourselves to God. Our hearts are are prone to wander, to begin to worship someone or something else other than God. Pastor Brad Bigney says, We are worshipers by nature, and our hearts don't just drift aimlessly. The drift is always away from the gospel, away from our Savior, and into the grip of something or someone else. Remember, we are, we are naturally worshipers, and we don't just cease worshiping if we're not worshiping God. We, we start to gravitate towards something else. The natural current of our hearts pulls us away from God, and it takes effort on our part to battle that current and to swim upstream towards God. If you relax, what will happen? The the current of your heart will will carry you away. And then suddenly you say, well, how did I end up over here? Well, you just stopped swimming. That's what happens when there's a current, right? You just stop swimming and you relax, you float. How many of you guys have floated the Boise River? Right? You don't have to paddle the whole time. That would be exhausting. What do you do? 
You're like, I sit in my floaty. That's all I have to do, uh, right? And you just relax, and it, and it carries you along. Well, th- that, is, that is what happens with our hearts. If you just say, okay, I'm going to relax, put it on autopilot, well, your heart's going to carry you along, but away from the Lord and towards sin. And when that happens, when we decide to relax, it's going to be really easy to slide into idolatry. It's where it's really interesting. At the very end of his uh, letter, 1 John, 1 John 5, 21, the Apostle John just kind of throws this on at the end. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's how he ends the letter. Like, why, why does he just throw that on? Well, it's, it's a very important and helpful reminder because what is our tendency? We don't keep ourselves from idols. And we need to be reminded about that. We need to exercise the spiritual discipline of remembering. And an idol can be anything that we elevate above God. Our ultimate priority, what we were created for, often gets lost in the shuffle. And when anything else takes first place, we're guilty of idolatry. Or whenever we look to something else as a source of satisfaction, we're guilty of idolatry. Or as a solution to the problems of life, we become guilty of idolatry. So say, for instance, in the conversation with my wife, this is just purely hypothetical, okay? Uh, if my greatest desire in a conversation with my wife is to be right, again, purely hypothetical, I'm guilty of idolatry. And I guarantee you, so I'm going to be carried along by the currents of my heart. My greatest desire is to be right rather than to worship God in that conversation. The the current of my heart is going to carry me towards an argument. Right? You're supposed to agree with me. My my greatest desire is to be right. Uh, But but I'm I'm going to be leading towards an argument... Because that's my greatest desire. It's become an idol, right? Or, or for others, if we turn to something else as a source of satisfaction, as a solution to our problems, okay? There's a lot of things that we can turn to. And you probably all have one on you. What is it you typically do when you're stressed? You, I want to turn my, my mind off for a time. I want to sit and veg. I want to sit and look at my screen, right? Uh, and, and that kind of helps me, me calm down. But in all of those moments, what is the Lord intending for us to do? What's us to pray without ceasing? To say, hey, when, when you are stressed, when you, when you need uh, to, to decompress, go to the Lord in prayer. Other people turn to alcohol as the solution to their problems. And there's a variety of, of things, but you just, you begin to see what an idol is. The things that we turn to and we begin to, to worship them, to look to them for, for satisfaction and to be a solution. But ultimately, those things are never really a source of satisfaction. It's the law of diminishing returns. They may satisfy for a time, but then what do we keep doing? We keep turning to them and being less and less satisfied. And the things that we turn to as a solution to our problems... Do they end up solving it or just kind of delaying it, (laughs) making it disappear for a time? It doesn't really solve things. Here's a quote to really be convicted by. Pastor Stuart Scott says, We worship 
that which we serve, speak about, sacrifice for, seek after, and spend money on. I really want to see what the, the focus of your life is. Look at your calendar. Look at your, do you guys have checkbooks? Or look on your online statement uh, and see, hey, where is my money going and where is my time going? Very convicting to begin to, to look at that, but we must. Well, we have to look at those things because, again, what is our greatest priority? What is the ultimate priority? Why are we here? To worship God. How about this? Let's, let's talk briefly about why you should worship God. Again, for, for our spiritual discipline of remembering, for broad reasons, we should worship God. Number one, his character is worthy. Again, as we sing, as we, as we read in Isaiah 6, what were the angels doing? They're worshiping. What, what will the angels continue to do for all eternity? Worship. What will we do? Worship. Right? We saw it in Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room in heaven. It's where we also see what we sang about of who is worthy to open the scroll. There's only one. That is Christ. We should worship God because his character is worthy. Secondly, his conduct is gracious. His conduct is gracious. He is our creator. Colossians 1.17 show us that he is our sustainer. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You would just fall apart without Christ. I know I would. He is our creator, our sustainer, and ultimately he is also our savior. Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Titus 2.13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should worship God because his character is worthy. His conduct towards us is gracious. Thirdly, his power is supreme. Matthew 10.28 says this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who cannot destroy both soul and who, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, we, we worship God for who he is and what he has done. Right, we, we worship God because his power is supreme, his conduct is gracious, because he is our creator. But then fourthly, something that we don't often think about because we become like what we worship. Okay, we become like what we worship. Turn over to Psalm 115. This is a continual theme in the Old Testament. That there is a logic and there is a reason that God commands us to worship him. Because ultimately, there is no higher good. 
On, on one level, that we have to think about that. So a couple years ago, there were some high school students that came to me with some really, really big questions, uh, questions that most adults don't even ask. And one of them was, isn't that kind of narcissistic for God to say, worship me? You ever think about that? Right? If, if I said that, you're like, what's wrong with that guy? But why is God able to say that? Well, God is the highest good. I am not the highest good. So, so for me to say worship me would not be corresponding to reality, right? But when God says worship him, that is proclaiming what is best for us. If there was something other than God and greater than God, then what would God do? He would say, yeah, pursue that. That's what's best for you. But God says worship him because ultimately there is no higher good. There is nothing greater. There's nothing better for us than to worship him. And ultimately, because as we look at worship, whatever we worship, we will become like. So look with me at Psalm 115. The psalmist writes this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. What is, he, what is the psalmist doing here? He's ascribing glory to God, not himself, not to us. And then the reasons why. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, speaking of the nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. So what's the description of an idol here? What are idols like? Blind, deaf, mute, that, 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 that's the description of them. They can't move. But then look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Right? You worship idols, what are you going to become like? One of those idols. Blind, deaf, dumb, unmoving. But then look at the very next verse. What is Israel supposed to do? Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Keeping that in mind, we become like what we worship. You worship idols, what will you become like? Those idols. If you worship Christ, what will you become like? Christ. And therein is our goal. Therein is the greatest ultimate good. And that is why... God commands us to worship him. That is our greatest good. We have to understand that and embrace that as individuals and as a church. We are called and commanded. We have been created to worship God. That is our highest priority. But then we might ask, what exactly does that look like? So I have this quick list here at the end of how should the church worship. How should the church worship? And I have three directions and four S's because I'm a pastor and I have to alliterate stuff. Uh, so three directions. Firstly, uh, we are to worship upwardly. 
that, that our worship is to be directed towards God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen say this, through him, speaking of Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is going to say almost the exact same thing. And then Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this to the church, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, and again, the your is plural there. It's not just an individual He's speaking to the corporate body of the church. Present all of y'all's bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are to worship God upwardly. Secondly, we are to worship God inwardly. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And when, when Christ quotes that passage, he, has, he adds one more. With all your mind. Our personal character and conduct. Worship must take place internally as the Word of God and the Spirit of God transforms who we are and makes us more and more like Christ, right? Not being conformed to this world is an aspect of internal worship. John MacArthur would say it this way, Worship is the overflow of a mind renewed by God's truth. Love that. Thirdly, we are to worship outwardly. If we are truly worshiping God, we are also going to love others. We're also going to care about others. So our worship of God is going to involve loving our neighbor. It's going to involve proclaiming the gospel. It's going to involve giving to those in need. Our, our love and worship of God doesn't just stay internal. It has to eventually be let out. Right? It should be pent up inside of us. Like, I got to go do something good because I love Jesus so much and I want to love others as well. That's how we should be feeling if we are truly worshiping God. So there were the three directions. Now the four S's. How, are, how is the church to worship? First and foremost, scripturally. That what we worship and how we worship is to be based upon God's word. Uh, it's to be founded upon the truth of the Bible. The Bible tells us not only what to believe about God, but also how to worship him. And God has given us those instructions because he cares about how we worship him. You ever think about with the incident in Exodus 32, the, the golden calf? Aaron, uh, the people come to Aaron and say, hey, Moses has been gone for a while. Can you whip up an idol for us to worship? Uh, and Aaron's like, sure thing. Give me your earrings. Uh, give me your nose rings. Give me all the gold and we'll, uh, we'll put it in the fire and we'll make a calf. Uh, and after making the, the calf, Aaron says, look, behold, Israel, this is the God who has brought you up out of Egypt. Is that true? That was extremely offensive to God. So, so God cares about how we worship him. Not through idols, not choose your own adventure. 
but he has told us how to worship. This is known as the, the regulative principle in worship, that our worship, we, the way that we worship is uh, informed by all that God's word says. And if God's word doesn't say that we should do it, then we refrain from it out of respect and deference to God, out of reverence to him. The church is to worship scripturally. Secondly, the church is to worship spiritually. Right? John chapter 3, in speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus kept saying, you must be born again. Then John chapter 4, in speaking with the Samaritan woman, Jesus says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that was Jesus' response. The, the woman is saying, hey, should we worship on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship, or should we worship in Jerusalem where the Jews worship? Which one? And Jesus says, well, really neither. You're to worship in your heart. You worship uh, in spirit and in truth. And he's speaking of that time when she wouldn't have to go to a location to, to worship God. She could worship God wherever she was. And that is, again, what we are called to do. We worship God in spirit. And we must be born again to have the spirit of God in us. Worship can't take place if we don't have the spirit of God in us. We worship scripturally, spiritually. We worship also sacrificially. Again, this is, I think, what is probably most hard for us because of the, the culture that we live in and our own temptations. We don't like to do hard things. We don't like to do things that are inconvenient, right? Here's, a, here's an example against that. Second Samuel 24, the prophet Gad comes and, and speaks to David and commands David, hey, God wants you to go and build an altar for him on the threshing floor of a man named Aruna the Jebusite. And so David goes over and speaks to Aruna, and uh, Aruna offers uh, to give his land to the king. And this is David's response in 2 Samuel twenty four twenty four. But the king said to Aruna, no. But I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Think about that. Our worship is intended to be sacrificial. In the Old Testament, what did you bring as a demonstration of your worship of God? You brought a sacrifice. One of your animals... You brought a demonstration of your affection for the Lord. Going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we are to be living sacrifices. Here's how some of that comes into play. Right now, you all made a sacrifice this morning. Do you guys realize that? You sacrificed your time. You sacrificed your time so that you could come be here with God's people, singing his praises, studying his word. That was a sacrifice because what could you have been doing? anything else. It's a sacrifice of your time, but also think of it this way. What else are a sacrifice of your time in acts of worship to God? Reading the Bible, being in prayer, serving others, right? You guys ever not served somebody because it was inconvenient? I'll put my hand down. No. But yeah, 
All of those are actions that you are sacrificing time, sacrificing your convenience in worship to God. So I'm going to obey what God has commanded me rather than doing what I feel like doing right now. And so beginning to view that, because again, sometimes we struggle to be in the Word, right? Sometimes we, we struggle to spend time in prayer. And at the heart of that, what is it we're not willing to sacrifice? Our time. I want to spend my time the way I want to spend my time. Not in submission to what God is calling me to do. We're to to worship scripturally, spiritually, sacrificially, and then fourthly, sanctifyingly. Again, as we worship, we will be growing in Christ-likeness. We will be growing more and more like him because, again, we become like what we worship. And as we, we walk with Christ over the years, we should be more and more like him, sanctified, changed into his image. That's how the church is to worship and Again, worship is the ultimate priority. It's the main thing. There are many other good things that a church can do. Uh, And uh, the pastors and elders, our task is to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, And uh, why don't you turn over with me this last passage, Luke chapter 10. It's very easy to get caught up in other good things in life. And I've said this before, but Satan would love for us to be focusing on good things rather than the best things, right? He would love for us to do that. Luke chapter 10, a story that you're probably familiar with, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What was Martha distracted with? A good thing. Service. Do you guys know we're all commanded to serve one another? She's doing what she was commanded to do in Scripture. But what had happened? Service became more important than just sitting at the feet of Jesus. What did Mary choose? To to sit, to, to worship, to hear from Christ. And Jesus says that that is the one thing that is necessary. And that there are many other things that can compete for our time, an infinite number of things. There are an infinite number of things that our church can, can focus on and prioritize. But what is the ultimate priority for each and every one of us and for our church? Worship. 
That's what we have to understand. That is the, the, the basic. And we can't speed past that. We need to camp on that each and every day. As I said, let today be Heavenly Father's Day. And tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. May we express our appreciation for all that he has done. May we express our adoration for all that he is. May we express our affection for him. And may we acknowledge that he is Lord over us. Amen? Let's pray.